Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You're watching CNN. I'm Allison Kosick in New York. President Biden is in South Korea, kicking off his first trip to Asia since taking office. He joined the new South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yeol, at a Samsung semiconductor plant. In a display of unity, the main goal of his trip is to reassure America's Asian allies of its commitment to counter and contain China. The president is also bracing for the possibility of a nuclear test by North Korea. Mr. Biden will go on to visit Japan later in his trip. I want to bring in Paula Hancock. She joins us live now from Seoul. Paula, uh, you know, as Biden arrives in Seoul, all eyes, they're turned toward North Korea and toward China. What message do you expect the president will try to send to these countries? Well, Alison, the main message he's trying to give by simply being here is that he is standing by his allies. Uh, he wants this to be uh, an economic partnership trip. He's certainly uh, starting it off in that uh, respect as well by starting at that Samson semiconductor plant just after he landed. Now, there has been a, a, sh a severe shortage of semiconductors in the uh, uh, chips in the United States. It certainly hurt American manufacturing. It's something that President Biden himself has been very focused on. And so this is really the message he was giving, that there would be more economic partnership uh, with the uh, the South Koreans. Uh, and certainly the message to China is the fact that they have been hurt badly by the supply chain issues. Uh, COVID, he pointed out, was uh, certainly something that has shown the fragility of the supply chain when it comes to uh, elements like this. And he also brought it back to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, saying again, that did hurt the supply chain and that they should not be working with partners they didn't share values with. Putin's brutal and unprovoked war in Ukraine has further spotlighted the need to secure our critical supply chains so that our economy, our economic and our national security are not dependent on countries that don't share our values. Now, Samson will also be building a $17 billion plant in Texas in the United States. Another reason why this is where President Biden started his trip here, uh, meeting for the first time the new South Korean president, Yoon Sok-yeol. Now, certainly economic partnership will be one of the key things they'll talk about at their summit on Saturday tomorrow. Uh, but clearly North Korea will be top of the agenda as well. It always does seem to make sure that it is being talked about when anyone important comes to the region. 
US and South Korean intelligence saying that they both believe that it could be imminent, another missile launch. It could be an intercontinental ballistic missile, according to uh, intelligence sources as well. Now, this hasn't happened before, that, uh, that there was some kind of missile launch while a US president was in the country. Uh, it usually happens just before or just afterwards to give some kind of message. Uh, but we are hearing from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan that they believe it may happen while or during or after uh, President Biden's trip, saying that they do have uh, contingency plans if that were to happen, and they know exactly how they would react. They have spoken to their allies about that. So while clearly this is a a reassurance of uh, allegiances, of alliances, uh, and President Biden showing that he is able to concentrate on Asia at the same time as uh, concentrating on Ukraine, it is also inevitably going to be talking about uh, the the 2% threats for the United States in the region, and that is China and North Korea. Alison? Certainly would be brazen if uh, North Korea did carry out that test. Paula Hancock's live from Seoul. Thanks very much. The United States has been the world's leading maritime power for decades, but China and North Korea are increasingly flexing their military muscles, triggering changes in the international security environment. CNN's Blake Essig reports aboard the USS Abraham Lincoln off the coast of Japan as the U.S. looks to reassure allies and maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific. If you ask United States 7th Fleet Commander Carl Thomas, this is what deterrence looks and sounds like. Deterrence to date has worked, uh, and I'm hopeful that it continues to work, but my job is to be prepared in case it doesn't. For the past several months, the U.S. Navy carrier Strike Group 3, led by the USS Abraham Lincoln and armed with the U.S. Navy's most advanced fighter wing, has conducted joint drills with allies like Japan and patrolled the waters of the Indo-Pacific. Being out here operating as a very visible, very agile, uh, dynamic force, uh, there's no better way to provide the deterrence that we need in this part of the region. This aircraft carrier brings massive firepower to the region. Its purpose to project power, increase security, and serve as a deterrent to countries like China, North Korea, and Russia. But in a part of the world seemingly more unstable by the day, the effectiveness of a carrier strike group like this as a deterrence to adversaries has been called into question. We need to have a more robust, uh, like-minded states coalition. Uh, because uh, China's rise is now the global phenomenon. A reality that isn't lost on quad member states, a coalition made up of the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, whose leaders are set to meet in Tokyo early next week. With South Korea watching from the sidelines, member states are likely to discuss a unified response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The recent flurry of weapons tests conducted by North Korea And of course, China. One of the things that China doesn't have is friends and allies. They have subjects. We have friends and allies who want to stand shoulder to shoulder with the United States. While the Quad isn't a NATO-like mutual defense commitment, continuing to upgrade security cooperation between Quad member states and other like-minded nations in this region is extremely important to maintaining maritime security. But according to Cleo Pascal, an Indo-Pacific strategic specialist, the key to combating China's rise isn't necessarily through military strength. By the time you get to the military part, 
you're almost too late. You, you don't want to cut off China militarily. You want to block its influence politically and economically first. However, as China and Russia work to strengthen their own military alliance in the region, Rear Admiral J.T. Anderson says the U.S.'s presence, along with the strength of its allies, has proven to be an effective deterrent. Nevertheless, if that deterrent fails... Our job is to fight and win, period. An outcome no one wants, but one the U.S. military and its allies must prepare for. Blake Essig, CNN, on board the USS Abraham Lincoln in the Philippine Sea. It is hell there. Those are the words of Ukrainian President Zelensky during his nightly address Thursday, saying Russia has completely destroyed the Donbass. Mr. Zelensky also said a Russian missile strike in the village of Desna killed civilians. According to him, Russian forces are making a deliberate and criminal attempt to kill as many Ukrainians as possible. It's a different story in Kharkiv, where President Zelensky says Ukrainian troops continue to advance to liberate the region. But he also noted Ukraine's monthly budget deficit is now $5 billion, stressing that his government needs financial support. Now to the human cost of this war. Sarah Seidner brings us this heartbreaking report on the people picking up the pieces of their lives after a Russian missile strike in Odessa. The moment a Russian missile slammed into an apartment building on Easter weekend in Odessa. Yuri Glodin's family was inside, waiting for him to return from the grocery store. On the way home, that's when I heard an explosion. I felt immediately something bad had happened. I tried to call my wife. She did not answer. When he got there, chaos. Police and EMS had arrived. He and a bystander ran in to try and find his family. We began to clear away the rubble, and this is how, alongside EMS staff, we were able to find the bodies of my family, all murdered. First, they found his mother-in-law Ludmila's body, then his wife's body, but his three-month-old daughter was missing. They were being told to leave for fear of a building collapse. I was constantly shouting, he says, there is still a child up there, did you find the child or not? Eventually, they found her. Her little body lifeless. He returned to find her blood-soaked baby stroller the next day. It's hard to live with this. My family was my whole life. I lived for their sake. When my baby came along, I understood the meaning of life, he says. 19-year-old Alexei can't believe he is still alive. He was in the same apartment complex. The explosion sent slabs of scorching hot concrete and shrapnel into his body. I realized that a rocket had hit my place and I started to burn, he says. I thought another minute and I would definitely turn into ash. I felt everything. 20% of his body was burned, his hands, arms and back. Jagged pieces of shrapnel had to be removed from his legs as well. He cannot do simple things for himself at the moment, but he is thankful for simply being alive. It's a miracle for everyone, for me as well, he says. Before the blast, he was preparing to take to the seas and work on a commercial supply ship. Now he's just practicing walking again. His neighbor, once surrounded by family, now walks alone. 
We used to walk in the park when my wife was pregnant. Every place he now goes in Odessa, a reminder of what a Russian missile took from him, his wife, child, and mother-in-law, now dead and buried. With each deadly strike, a new and terrible story is born in Ukraine. Sarah Seidner, CNN, Odessa. The lawyer for the Russian soldier standing trial in Kyiv for a war crime says Russia is to blame for the war and not the man who's in the dock. Vadim Shishimarin has already pleaded guilty to shooting an unarmed Ukrainian civilian. The trial has been adjourned until Monday. Let's bring in CNN's Melissa Bell. She is live for us from Kyiv. Uh, Melissa, I know uh, the trial is, is done for the week. We are on day three. What happened in the latest court proceedings? Uh, well, it's been just an extraordinary week in that courtroom since what we've had uh, painted for us, uh, not just through the testimony given by Vadim Shishimarin, uh, the defense provided by his lawyer, the prosecution's case laying out the facts of it, but also the testimony of another soldier who was with Shishimarin that day is essentially a picture of some of the chaos from the Russian side of those early days of the invasion. Uh, the bare facts of the case, very briefly, Vadim Shishimarin, uh, it's understood that he and several other uh, um, uh, soldiers were traveling in a tank division that was heading across the Russian border when it hit a mine. He and several other soldiers, according to the prosecution's case, then escaped from that uh, tank column in a stolen car, arrived in a village not terribly far really far from the Russian border, saw an unarmed civilian who was on his phone and outside his house and uh, Vadim Shishimarin shot him. Now, what we've learned from what happened was happening inside that car is that it was an order that he was given to shoot the civilian for fear that he might report them. Uh, both soldiers explaining that really it had been a scene of panic. Vadim Shishimarin had resisted the order, but it had been given uh, in such a way that he could not refuse. Uh, and essentially that is the nub also of the defense's case, that these young soldiers didn't really know what they were going in to do. And that's something Vadim Shishimarin said in his very poignant exchanges yesterday with uh, that civilian's widow, that they knew they were told to head in with their column and they did not know what would follow. Here is what Vadim Shishimarin's defense lawyer had to say in court today. The leadership of the Russian Federation is to blame for this war, not this boy. He was trying to save his own life, especially from the threat that came from his fellow servicemen. So we will find out uh, on uh, Monday at the end of an extraordinary week in that courtroom, uh, Alison, and having listened uh, to that widow cross-examine Vadim Shishimar, and it was really very emotional, uh, asking him about how he felt. He's expressed his remorse, he's expressed his regret, but he is facing uh, life in jail, and that is what we will find out on Monday. We will get both the verdict of the court and the sentence that the 21-year-old will face. And until then, we will talk to you on Monday. Melissa Bell, live for us from Kyiv. Thanks so much. Finland's main gas company says Russian gas supplies to Finland will halt on Saturday morning. Gasm said it will keep its customers supplied with natural gas from other sources after that. The CEO says the company has been preparing. Earlier this week, Gasm said it would not pay for Russian gas in rubles or use a scheme proposed by Russia's Gazprom to convert euros to rubles. Coming up... Rising recession fears. How great is the risk? Moody's Analytics chief economist will join us with insight. Plus, monkeypox alert. The rare disease now appearing in a number of countries, including 
here in the U.S. Details next. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stock futures are higher after the Chinese central bank unexpectedly cut a key interest rate. Futures for the tech-heavy Nasdaq are up right now about one and a quarter percent. S&P futures, they're rising as well after the index came close to falling into a bear market. European markets are also gaining amid hopes that China's decision will boost the world's second biggest economy. In Asia, we saw green arrows across the board, the Hang Seng jumping 3%, and South Korea's Kospi closing up about 2%. Christine Romans joins us now. I am so happy it's Friday. I don't know about you. What a week for Wall Street. But what's interesting is not much has changed since that massive sell-off on Wednesday till today, except for that, that rate cut in China. It feels like investors really want to grab onto anything positive. Yeah, and maybe just a bounce, quite honestly. You know, just uh, sometimes when you get a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, big down days, you have a little bit of uh, a bargain hunting. And maybe that's what we're seeing here. The S&P 500 has avoided for now by a whisper um, that official bear market territory. There are plenty of people, though, who think that that is all but, <clears throat> excuse me, but inevitable, Allison, that you're going to see uh, a bear market there. We're almost there. And you tend to see, you tend to see investors t- kind of take a, take a run for something like that and make that mark happen. How shallow it will be, we don't know. Will it cause a recession or does it, does it portend a recession? No one knows for sure what's going to happen next, which is why this market has been just so wild. But, you know, this hasn't been a yo-yo market. This has been really a slow-mo, lower-moving market for much of the year as investors really grapple with a whole new, whole new uh, playing field here of higher interest rates, inflation. Can central banks get it right? And can we get COVID behind us? Oh, yeah. And then there's a war in Europe as well. So just a lot of cross-currents, Allison. Yeah, and you speak about those cross currents and you wonder what could be the next catalyst for Wall Street to sort of accept those cross currents at this point, know that they're going to be hanging around for a while and move higher. Uh, What do you see next as uh, sort of the, the next driver? I think we'll be really looking at all these earnings reports. Remember, it was Walmart and Target that really sparked so much of that unease about what's happening with the consumer and how corporate profits and margins, by the way, margins over the past decade have gotten so fat for big companies. I mean, shareholders have just been relishing these big, big margins that companies have been passing on higher costs to their consumers and the consumers keep shopping and they kept earning money. And then this week we started to see some signs that maybe those margins couldn't stay so fat forever. And that's what really got uh, got things tumbling on, on the downside. So we've got a lot more earnings to get through that are really paint the picture for how two years into COVID, into this, into this new world of of, of supply chains that must be made more resilient. That's going to take investments. That's going to take time. We're going to have to redraw the global energy map. That's going to take investment. That's going to take time. We could have, for American consumers, we have a period of high energy prices. That's going to weigh on consumer sentiment. So there's just so much going on here. I would say the next thing to really watch are these earnings and what these companies are telling us about this, uh, you know, this, this new brave new world. Great context, Christine. Christine Romans, thanks so much. Have a great weekend, Allison. You too. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Health officials in the U.S. are investigating a confirmed case of monkeypox in Massachusetts, plus a suspected case in New York. There have been dozens more cases in several other regions around the world where the virus is not usually common, including Canada, Great Britain, Italy, and Spain. 
CNN health reporter Jacqueline Howard joins me live now from Atlanta, Georgia. Great to see you, Jacqueline. I'm wondering what are health officials saying then about this infection? Should we be concerned? Allison, CDC officials that I've talked to say that there is scientific concern, but for us, for the public, no need to worry, no need to panic. But there are two reasons why scientists are investigating this and taking a close look. CDC official Dr. Jennifer McQuiston told me that one of those reasons is because these cases are occurring outside of a region in the world where they normally are seen. Have a listen. This is a very unusual situation. Monkeypox is normally only reported in West Africa or Central Africa, and we don't see it in the United States or in Europe. And the number of cases that are being reported is definitely outside the level of normal for what we would see. So we heard there, Allison, she said this is outside the level of normal that we would normally see. And the second reason why scientists are concerned with monkeypox, we typically see the virus spread from animals to humans. The virus was first identified in the late 1950s, and it was found in lab monkeys. That's why it was named monkeypox. And since then, we've seen transmission mostly from rodents to humans. But with these cases, the CDC official told me that some of them appear to be spread among people. So we are seeing human to human transmission. And that's why there is this level of scientific concern. Now, overall, monkeypox is still rare. No need to panic. But again, because this is happening at a level that's abnormal, because it's seen outside of the region of the world where it's typically found, and because we might be seeing human to human spread, All of those reasons are why scientists are investigating this. Allison. Okay, Jacqueline Howard, thanks very much. A setback in China in battling the latest COVID outbreak. Shanghai is reporting three new cases outside quarantine areas after local officials declared the city had eliminated community spread. And in Beijing, two large districts have been partially locked down after clusters of COVID cases were detected. North Korean state media are reporting that the country's so-called fever cases have surpassed 2 million since late April. The secretive nation is scrambling to contain a COVID outbreak, which it claims began two and a half years after the virus was detected globally. CNN's Will Ripley looks at how North Korea's outbreak has spread so quickly. The mood was triumphant crowd massive, most people not wearing masks. At last month's military parade in Pyongyang, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un promised to protect his people from hostile forces like the U.S. Protection from the virus that would soon ravage his unvaccinated population? Non-existent. Weeks later, a devastating fever believed to be undiagnosed COVID-19, infecting and killing some of Pyongyang's most privileged citizens. The military parade was a super spreader event and we know that they flew in citizens from across North Korea. Some of those citizens from the Chinese border region, a place I visited five years ago. North Koreans are living a literal stone's throw away from the raging Omicron outbreak in China. Beijing pledged to help Pyongyang battle the outbreak. The Hermit Kingdom's hermetically sealed border apparently breached by the highly contagious variant. Two years of pandemic isolation, two years of sacrifice, gone in one parade. That's the perfect Petri dish for this virus to spread. So I think that that parade will go down in history as a very bad idea uh, for North Korea. 
a colossal miscalculation, and experts say the likely cause of North Korea's explosive outbreak. An unprecedented nationwide lockdown, skyrocketing infections and deaths, a dilapidated healthcare system on the verge of collapse, lacking even the most basic medicines and medical equipment, millions of malnourished North Koreans at higher risk of severe infection. I think it's going to test his leadership, certainly, and it's going to create some urgency for very creative storytelling in, in the North Korean propaganda apparatus. North Korean propaganda, crucial to keeping the Kim family in power, even during times of crisis, like the deadly famine of the late 1990s, when citizens literally ate tree bark to survive. The Kims rule over a police state, that relies on heavy surveillance, restricted movement, and brutal political prison camps. They strengthened social controls because they had the fear that, you know, if there is an outbreak, if there is a crisis, uh, that was what happened in the 1990s, that, you know, the police, the secret police, uh, the military, they, they all went hungry. Now, they're getting sick. State media says around 2 million fever cases in one week. A crisis of Kim's own creation, potentially devastating hardship for the North Korean people. Will Ripley, CNN, Taipei. Stay with CNN. The market open is next. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick in New York, and there you have it. U.S. markets are up and running. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all recovering some ground this morning at the end of another volatile week that included Wednesday's big sell-off of the Dow losing 1,100 points. This Friday, the Chinese central bank cut a key interest rate, giving a boost to investor sentiment around the world. Meantime, shares of another U.S. retailer are tumbling. We're watching shares of Ross stores. They're under pressure after disappointing earnings. But Foot Locker, as you can see, is jumping after its quarterly profit beat Wall Street estimates. Joining us now, Mark Zandi. He's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Great to have you with us today, Mark. Hi, Allison. So we have been watching the market getting crushed. You know, it's not just the market, though. It's, you know, from Wall Street to Main Street. The, the big worry here is a possible recession. So, how high is our risk of recession here in the U.S.? Well, I'd say uncomfortably high, Allison. I, I put the odds at about one in three over the next year and close to even odds over the next two years. I mean, we're grappling with very high, uh, painfully high inflation, and the Fed uh, is working really hard to get that inflation down. But that means higher interest rates, and that, of course, creates all kinds of adjustments to the stock market and to the housing market and to the broader economy. So it's a pretty tricky time. And of course, adding to the complexity of it all is that the pandemic is still on. It's still creating havoc in places like China and uh, scrambling supply chains. And of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is still creating havoc in oil and other commodity markets. So there's a lot going on here. So the risks are awfully high. Yeah, we talk a lot about a lot of cross currents going on and the Fed somehow has to get a handle on this. And everyone's questioning whether or not the Fed's going to be successful in the so-called soft landing. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think they're up to the task. You know, I, I still think better than even odds with, that we navigate through. And that's partly that I think uh, that the Fed will be able to calibrate monetary policy. That is, raise interest rates just enough, slow growth, bring down inflation, but not raise rates so far, so fast that it undermines economic activity. 
And I'm, I'm also uh, assuming and expecting that the worst of the pandemic is behind us and that, you know, we'll have new waves of the virus, but each wave will be less disruptive than the previous one. And that the worst of the economic fallout from the Russian invasion is also behind us. So, you know, we need a little bit of luck here uh, on the pandemic and the, and the fallout from the Russian invasion and, uh, you know, some deft policymaking by the Fed. But I think they're up to the task, but it'll be a close call. I'm curious what you're going to be watching. What leading indicators will you keep an eye on as you gauge whether, at, you know, when this downturn could come, um, you know, as, as we watch all these factors play out? Well, a whole bunch of indicators. I'll, I'll point out one, Allison, and that's consumer confidence. You know, the consumers are, are pretty dour right now. I mean, they've been through a lot. The high inflation is really wearing uh, on the collective psyche, high oil prices and and uh, food prices is really making people dour. And of course, you know, two years of the pandemic uh, is really weighed on sentiment. But the real uh, uh, leading indicator here is if sentiment collapses, if it falls very sharply in a two, three month period, that's because at the end of the day, a recession is a loss of faith, you know, faith that I'm going to hold on to my job as a consumer and I'll pull back a faith as a business person that if I produce something that there'll be some somebody out there to, to buy it. So sentiment is really, really important at turning points. So if we see a big decline in sentiment for two, three months, I think uh, that would be an indication we're going into recession. Some may say by watching earnings, let's say from Target and Walmart, we're sort of seeing the canary in the coal mine as far as how the consumer feels. At the same time, we're seeing home improvement chains like Home Depot and Lowe's. They're looking strong. So we are seeing this disparity in how the consumer is acting, though. Yeah, I think consumers so far, they're hanging in there. You know, they haven't lost faith. I mean, there's lots of jobs. Unemployment is low. Debt service is low. Uh, You know, they're they're in good shape. Uh, I, I think the what we're seeing among the retailers is they're grappling with the, the high inflation. They're grappling with the fact that the what they're buying is now costing a lot more. Uh, they're grappling with the high diesel prices because of the cost of shipping goods around. They're grappling with mm. the higher wage costs. So it's cutting into their earnings. I think overall spending is is just fine, at least so far. So so far, the you know consumers in the game, and as long as they are, we're going to remain recession free. But that's why we have to keep all eyes on the consumer. Crystal ball this for me. This time next year, May of 2023, what do you see for inflation, you know, food and car prices, and even the housing market? How are things going to look a year from now? I expect them to be lower. I mean, I I think the worst of the supply chain disruption should be behind us. We'll get more vehicle production, which will mean that we'll get vehicle prices down. I think the worst of the Russian invasion will be behind us. Uh, uh, I think oil prices, and then we'll get more supply because of these higher prices uh, creating profits for the energy companies. We'll produce uh, more oil and we'll get prices down on, on oil. Uh, and I think the economy will cool off, obviously, given the higher rates uh, that the Fed's implementing. And that'll take some of the pressure off the labor market and wage growth. So I, I expect that inflation will be meaningfully lower a year from now, moving in the right direction. And if that's the case, then the most likely outcome here is we'll, we'll navigate through without uh, going into recession. We can only hope. Mark Zandi, Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. Great to have your perspective today. Sure thing, Allison. Stay with First Move. Coming up, a new reality shared by many Ukrainians. We're joined by a man who left his job in real estate to fight for his country.
The war in Ukraine has seen countless civilians put their day jobs on pause as they join the war effort. My next guest is one of them. Ivan Mafichenko ran a real estate investment and management firm before the war. Now he's fighting with the Ukrainian army. And he joins us now from Ukraine. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So talk us through this. How did you come to the decision to go from, you know, working in real estate, in real estate investment, basically corporate America, suit and tie? I saw your LinkedIn. You're in a suit and tie, and I saw part of your resume there. You know, you've been a CFO. How did you decide to go from corporate America to the front lines and fight for Ukraine? Well, I think my story is pretty typical for for almost every Ukrainian. Uh, what happened is when the war started, I took my wife and kids to to a safe place and then ultimately to Europe. And then I went and uh, to a recruiting station to join an army. I wasn't accepted first because I don't have any military background or military training. But then a couple of weeks later, they called me and accepted me in. Uh, so I went through training and uh, right now I'm waiting for, for a transfer to Battle Brigade and to ultimate deployment to the front lines. I hear that you went for training, but you don't have a military background, you say. So how scared were you when you picked up your first weapon? Well, right. I mean, it's, I, was, I was more scared when I saw pictures from, from Bucha. Um, this is a town where my parents live. Uh, they were they, they bought a house there and were supposed to move in to a new house on February 27th, so three days after the war started. And I think everybody saw what happened there, all all the war crimes. And uh, you know, once I saw those pictures, basically any self-preservation instinct that I had was surpassed by by you know by by willingness to join an army and fight Russian threat. And how'd your wife feel about this? Well, she's she's worried. Uh, at first, it was it was difficult to convince her that I should go and do that. But as time goes on, and uh, we realize that we we need to have everybody who's who can hold a gun in the army, uh, it, it it got better. So she kind of used to that at this point. But she's still very very worried. We we talk with her every day. Can you describe what it's like to be on the front lines fighting uh, for Ukraine? Have you gotten into any uh, difficult moments where you thought this could be it? I haven't been to the first line of contact, which is, you know, where where the, um, the, the most heated battles go on. Uh, as I said, because I didn't have any military training, I was assigned to a, to a security platoon and our job was to basically guard infrastructure objects uh, across Ukraine. Uh, but uh, I should be going on my first deployment and first front line next couple of weeks. So I haven't experienced that, uh, you know, serious battle engagements, but uh, I'm going to do that over the course of the next weeks. And how do you feel about that? Because that's taking a completely different step. Well, it is a little bit scary, but you know you got to do what you got to do. We're fighting on our own land. We did not invade anyone, and we know what we fight for, and we don't have any other choice. So that makes it much easier. I understand you've started a Change.org petition. Um, 
what was that for and you know how many contributions have you uh, gotten and how is it going it wasn't me who started this petition it was uh, it was one of the wives of azov regiment fighters who were trapped in mariupol and this petition already gathered i believe over million and a half uh, signatures but at this point that uh, evacuation from mariupol has already started uh, I think the, you know, there is no need to further uh, promote this petition. What we should do right now is just to watch how things unfold in Mariupol and hope that uh, Russians will keep their word and will exchange Ukrainian soldiers for, for Russian uh, prisoners. What message do you have for any loved ones watching you right now? Well, uh, for, for, for my loved ones, I just wanted to say that I love you. Nothing new there, but I, I, I do have a, a quick message for American people. Um, I want to thank from, from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of all Ukrainians, a big thank you f to all of you guys for helping our resistance. Without you, it wouldn't have been possible. And we know that you sacrifice your uh, economic comfort uh, to do that. Uh, so we really appreciate everything you do, and we will win this together. So glory to Ukraine and glory to American people. All right. Ivan Mafichenko, uh, we wish you the best. Thanks for joining us from Ukraine. Thank you very much. Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive around Kharkiv has made that city much safer than it was just a few weeks ago. Now some residents who evacuated are venturing back to reunite with loved ones and see what's left of their homes. Dan Rivers has this report. The siege of Kharkiv was documented for us in March in this video diary. Last night was probably the most terrifying night of my life. Kharkiv was terribly bombarded. Anasya Paraskevova filmed the destruction and her emotions, giving a harrowing insight into this war. Airstrikes all over the city. Dozens of buildings destroyed. Civilian buildings where people live. Today, she's returned to her home city for the first time. She's with her mother, after staying with friends in the relative safety of Poltava, a two-hour drive from Kharkiv. She's happy to see things being in place. Oh, good. Cry. I'm crying again. Sorry. They haven't seen her father for almost two months. Родной город. In her video diary, Anasia showed where she took refuge in her flat a home she was forced to leave without knowing if she'd ever see it again. This is our hiding place. It's a vestibule area between two walls with no windows. I don't know why, but being bombarded is easier than living in your home. 
everybody told me about it. But today, Harkiv is much safer. She's come back to check on her apartment. Oh, <laughs> feels so strange. Does it feel strange coming back? Yes. Oh, <laughs> my room. Oh. It just feels odd because it's so not usual like it's supposed to be, you know. I, I just for some reason thought that I will return and all the furniture will be standing right. the right way. Sorry. <laughs> my bed is superior to Poltava bed. <laughs> Her flat is undamaged, but you don't have to go far to see the consequences of Russia's bombing. When we were still in Kharkiv, this was the closest, uh, first, the closest large explosion. Uh, we heard incredibly loud noise and also the windows and the doors in the house were shaken. And this was it. Walls peeled off by the blast, which have laid bare lives ruined in an instant. The random nature of what survived and what didn't is on display, like an exhibit in a museum. But this war is not in the past. Around the edge of the city, it is very much in the present. The attack on the city's town hall marked the beginning of the siege. Today, almost in an act of defiance, flowers have been planted in front of it. For Anasya, it is a sign Kharkiv will recover. This building was the heart of Kharkiv. Yep. Right. Would you say Kharkiv's heart has been broken? Yes, I would say so, for sure. When this, uh, it was the most uh, excruciating thing to see this building uh, rocketed. Anasia has returned to a city scarred by this war, but one in which its citizens are beginning to glimpse normality again. And in the warm spring sunshine, there is something that's been absent for the people of Kharkiv and Anasia for so long. Hope. Dam Rivers, ITV News, Kharkiv. Coming up, heading to the stars. Boeing Starliner leaves on another test flight in an unmanned mission to the International Space Station. Details after the break. Three, two, one, and liftoff. Boeing's Starliner spacecraft launches into space. It's the third uncrewed test mission for the rocket, which is now on its way to the International Space Station. I want to bring in Rachel Crane. She joins us live. So, Rachel, this Starliner is actually a space taxi, right? And it's had some hiccups with this mission because it hasn't completed its flight to the space station. So how are things going? That's right, Allison. This is actually the third launch attempt for Boeing with Starliner. As you pointed out, this is an uncrewed mission. They ne need certification from NASA before they can start flying humans in this. And the intention of the commercial pr crew program, which was a program from NASA that actually birthed this spacecraft here called Starliner, also SpaceX's Dragon, was to replace the shuttle program. And what we saw yesterday was finally a successful launch of Starliner, and it is on its way right now to rendezvous with the International Space Station. So third chime was the charm, Allison. But it wasn't without a few road bumps. Boeing said in a press conference following yesterday's launch that two of 12 thrusters on board the spacecraft actually failed. Luckily, there were redundancies in place, and the spacecraft was able to correct for that failure. Take a listen to what Mark Nappy, Boeing vice president, had to say about it. 
Now the team is working the why as to is why we had uh, those those anomalies occur. Um, we have a, a safe vehicle and we're on our way to the International Space Station. Uh, this is a test flight, so we're going to learn, and this is uh, this is one of the the items that we will learn some lessons from, and and we'll make the adjustments as we go. So, Allison, Boeing hopes to fly humans in this spacecraft before the end of the year, but that's probably a goal that seems unlikely. As we pointed out earlier, this is a program that's been plagued by failures and delays. But yesterday's launch, uh, that was a major step forward for the company. And, of course, NASA and Boeing both very happy about this. $4 billion of taxpayer money here in the U.S. has been sunk to create that spacecraft. So, Boeing, NASA, and tax Taxpayers all across the country, very happy with the way this mission is going so far. But, of course, there are several major milestones ahead before we can call this mission a success. The spacecraft has to dock with the International Space Station. That should be happening at 7, 10 p.m. Eastern this evening. It'll stay on board for a few days before making uh, its return through the Earth's atmosphere and make a parachuted landing back in the U.S. So, Allison, you know, a reminder uh, just how hard space travel is when you look back at this program. Uh, again, mm. this was a successful launch today, but without a few hiccups. But of course, as we heard uh, Mark Nappy say, these are learning lessons and they're going to get to the bottom of what happened here. Allison. Very quickly, Rachel, you know, you think about the competition that Boeing is under with uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX uh, with these kinds of missions. That's right, Allison. At one point, actually, SpaceX was the underdog when these contracts from NASA, these multi-billion dollar contracts, were first issued. You know, Boeing has a lot of space heritage uh, with NASA. They were, you know, the main contractor on the International Space Station. So SpaceX was thought of as the underdog. Uh, but as we saw, SpaceX beat Boeing uh, to the International Space Station. SpaceX has already had five crewed launches for NASA. And here, you know, Boeing is just trying to get certification for a test launch. So certainly SpaceX has beat Boeing in this particular mm. race back to the International Space Station. But NASA is very eager to have a redundant system to mm. get back to the International Space Station. Of course, it's never good to have all your eggs in one basket when it comes to space travel, as we've seen with this program and time and time again. Right. You know, there are delays and there are failures, mm. and you always want to have a backup when you can. Yeah. Allison. Plan B. They don't call it a space race for nothing. <laughs> Rachel Crane, thanks so much. And that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Eleni Giocos is next. Have a great weekend. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 